We should probably get started here in just a second, but I thought this was this was really awesome. This was tweeted to me. Uh, it's the hybrid tube amp for the Raspberry Pi. It's on Kickstarter. They had a goal of $20,000. They've already raised $89,229 with 20 days left to go. 648 backers. It is a monster tube amp that you slap onto the top like a hat to your Raspberry Pi. Look at that thing, Wes. That is neat. Now, I'm, uh, I, I know audio from How does it plug production standpoints. Oh, you know, like through the regular interfaces. Over the, it uses the GPIO pins to like. Oh, neat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you bring that sweet tube sound to the Raspberry Pi, it says. And uh, I'm not <laughs> a really like super high-end audio guy, but I could kind of tell you a little bit about it. This crazy thing uh, has a uh, PCM5102A DAC that drives a single 12AU7 tube gain stage with a solid-state Class A output. It's designed to drive headphones from 32 to 300 ohms quite easily. That's in other words to say... Pretty nice piece of kit. And yeah. the, the pricing, you know, is uh, getting up there now because of a lot of the different slots. But right now, you could get them for 150 bucks. I would never do something like this. But here's what I freaking love about this. First of all, super high-end, crazy, weird gear right. being built for the Raspberry Pi. That's, that's next-level stuff, man. That's next-level stuff. I think this is super neat. I'm not going to back it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea that it's, like, almost the size of, like, just little little usb dac but it's also running linux and you know do whatever you want on it boom raspberry pi not included this is linux unplugged episode 145 for may 17th 2016 Unplugged your weekly Linux podcast that's detecting more hops than it thinks it should. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. <laughs> hey there, Wes. You know, I am really looking forward to today's episode. A couple of fun things happened on Sunday's show, and one of those things we're going to rip out and expand here in the show because we've gotten a lot of feedback on it. I love it when the community sort of like gives us a feedback loop that feeds right into the next show. That's why we're here. We're riding that feedback loop right now, and uh, we'll be covering that later on in the show. First, though, some interesting updates and tidbits from the Linus. Actually, some really good, like, serious, nice insights from Linus about the security. It's in like the, getting copy with Linus. Right. Security in the Internet of Things, which uh, he actually had some really sane thoughts on. Uh, later on, though, Greg KH, your buddy, he says you're insecure unless you're using his kernel and only his kernel. So uh, it's a bold statement, Wes. It's a bold we'll tell you which kernel that is and why he thinks that. And he's got both Red Hat and Sousa to point the finger at. He's wagging his finger. And then after all of that, we'll finish it up with a rather kind of urgent security thing going on. In, on two fronts. One with Mozilla and one with TeamViewer. So if you are considering remote administration on your computer or have TeamViewer in production like I know Noah does, you definitely want to stay tuned for that. So it's a big show, big, big show. Before we go any further, though, we must bring in that virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumbleroo. Hello. Hello. That makes me smile. Wow. Wow, that was, uh, 
that is a heck of a showing. And I'll tell you what, uh, kind of a kind of a surprisingly good tone from all of you. <laughs> we should consider doing a, a sing along after the show. See, Linux users are nice, Chris. I told you. Yeah. Uh, although one a voice that will only be joining us from time to time. I secretly use Arch Linux. Uh, Poby is uh, he's not in there. I don't think because uh, he's down in Tejas uh, for uh, Oscon, which is going on right now. Boy, Oscon, kind of a rough schedule timing because they're scheduled right up against um, Google I.O. next right. week. Or t- t- tomorrow, I should say. So that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, all right. So before we go any further, Wes, I did mention the hops. I got to talk about I got to I got to just say I got to talk about this for a second. The triple seven from Scuttlebutt. This is a Belgian style ale that was literally brewed and bottled hmm, 20 minutes from the studio yep. right on the waterfront. It's gorgeous. This is a nice one. It's a dark gold, slight copper kind of color with an aroma that's got delicate cloves. Banana esters, whatever the hell that I is. I do get the cloves, though. It's kind of spicy. Maybe th- Look at this. That's exactly what I, Yeah. And also, hints of white pear. Mm. Damn. I also did not realize it was 9% when I bought it. Yeah, it's a stronger one. It's got very smooth and delicate, and it finishes dry. That's true, though. With a, with a hint of tartness, which I'm not going to lie, I'm definitely picking up on. Mm-hmm. And the first time I read that, I, th- I thought it said a hint of fartness. It does not say that. And I have not even finished the first one. So it's going to be a good show, Wes. It's going to be a good show. Uh, one of the things that I was playing on the live stream, unless it's copywritten because then I, I wasn't playing it. But if it's not copywritten, one of the things I was playing on the live stream before we started the show was a little sit down that Linus did at the Internet of Things conference, which is the, actually kind of a big deal on, on, on the front right there. The fact that Linus is even at an Internet of Things conference says something, right? Yeah, definitely. And so he's there. Oh, whoa, whoa. Hi there. Hi there. You know what I like is when I accidentally scroll when I have my, my mouse up on the tabs. He's at this Internet of a Things conference, and he had a, he had a whole range of things to say, and the whole video is embedded right there in, in that uh, link in the show notes. So if you want to get that, you can listen to the whole thing. It's, a, it's like 30 minutes long. Pretty low-key, but it's a good listen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, uh, so we, um, uh, Internet of Topics, uh, uh, Internet of Things was obviously the main topic at this conference, and uh, the top interview was Linus himself. And he said, maybe you won't see when asked about uh, – I'll give a little context here since we're not going to play the clip. Um, when asked about what's Linux's competitive advantage on those really far-end like um, you know, sensor devices, the ones that are running other embedded OSs now. And he's like, I don't really know if there is a competitive advantage for Linux there. Uh, but he does think that Linux will be at the central hub. Right. That all those things connect back to. Yeah, I think his, his, you know, part of his point is that there's – sure, there will, will be small devices that don't need Linux, but – they will all be talking to other smarter devices that you will need the kind of capability that Linux provides. Okay. So then he got all Zen Master when talking about security. Uh, he was, you know, the, the problem was, and he even, uh, the interviewer brought up the fact that uh, um, Bruce Schneier wrote an article saying the Internet of Things is unpatchable. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's busted. It's busted by design. It is not patchable. We are screwed with the Internet of Things. And so Linus was asked, do you basically agree with Bruce Schneier? And he said, you know what? I don't worry about it. I don't worry about it because there's not a lot we can do. It's unpatchable. It's just a fact of life. But uh, that's why he thinks hubs running Linux will be even more important. Your thoughts, Wes. Your thoughts. Oh, is it unpatchable, Wes? I don't know about unpatchable, but uh, I think he's right. Yes, it is. Come on. It is pretty much unpatchable. There are ways to deal with it, but clearly no one is interested in pursuing them, and there's no money being spent doing it. So uh, the problem is you have two scenarios. First problem is you you either have the up to the user, which then it never gets done. Absolutely. Or you force the update on the user, and then you have a problem. Like we were chatting in our production chat this morning. Uh, Angela's grandmother has an old computer 
that uh, had by by default the express settings were turned on and recommended updates were turned on. And this morning, her computer automatically installed Windows 10, rebooted, and then just fails to boot. Like, it just fails at boot up. And now she knows her computer for her, as a woman who I think is maybe in her 80s or near it, her computer is essentially ruined now. Right. Just doesn't work. So automatic updates, obviously, is not a way to go either, because a company with billions of dollars and literally tens of thousands of developers can't get it right. I would hope that these smaller platforms with more rigidly controlled hardware will be easier to target for automatic updates, especially if you don't allow any or very much user configuration to, you know, make it a more varied platform. But still, you have a very good point. And it's no good if your product goes down. You like it, uh, or I mean, I'm sorry, North Ranger, you think corporate, like, device builders, like your Hughes out there, they think what Linus is saying is music to their ears? Define what you're saying. Explain. Yeah, so I mean, they love Linux because it makes uh, their jobs easier to bring new devices to the market quickly. But ultimately, they would rather you throw that device away in two years and buy a new one. So who cares if they get updates for a long, long time? You know, so for the for the device makers out there that want to sell you a new device, um, you know, Lin, uh, Linus not caring about security or not caring about uh, continuous mm-hmm. updates, um, you know plays right into their narrative. Hmm. Mini-MC, uh, I like your point, too, about uh, perhaps this is where Ubuntu uh, Snappy Core or uh, whatever could come in and maybe provide a solution that's actually manageable, right? Yeah, as far as I heard, this was the bright origin of Ubuntu to being yeah. able with Snappy to upgrade the operating system of these devices. And supposedly, <clears throat> excuse me, supposedly, Canonical is working with Hawaii and uh, a few other vendors out there, and they're uh, going to be demoing Snappy Core on a device at OSCON this week. Oh, really? So we should probably have more news by last, I would think. That's awesome. So yeah, maybe they will. Maybe they will save all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you sound so hopeful. Speaking of Linus, Linux four point six came out uh, today. Was it? Uh, let's see. Uh, yesterday? No, no, two days ago. And it's got a couple of big things in it. USB 3.1 super speed is ten gigabit support. Uh, out-of-memory task killer has been improved. Orange FS has been uh, included. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, a distributed file system. And the Batman protocol got an update, which I'm always a fan of, tracking Batman. It's actually, there's there's just actually a, a metric S ton of updates. I mean, we don't very often mention kernel versions when they get updated on no, the show. Don't. But every now and then there's a, there's, a, there's a doozy, or as Linus puts it, a weasel, which is explained in that video. Every now and then there's a weasel that comes out that looks like a real good one. Unless you're Greg KH. And then he says, if you're running anything but his. You know, also in here is like the USB 3.1 support. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, that'll be important. Yeah, that, so that's called the Super Speed Plus protocol, which is the so, 10 gigabit speed for USB, which is really great. Yeah, go ahead. So in here, actually, it's because Linus has mentioned many times before that he doesn't look at security like the security experts usually care. He thinks it's okay and good that people care about it, but he personally doesn't even see it as a big threat. As software will change and accommodate depending on the scenario. And security is usually uh, much more about the work environment than necessarily the technical feat of the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He says that he's concerned. While Greg, on the other hand, he tends to listen a little bit more uh, on the security experts because he handles the stable kernel. So his concerns are also a little bit more in line with yeah. that vision of what's secure. Yes, in yeah. a way. He was, actually, he was actually just recently interviewed and... Uh, 
uh, he he kind of outlines his thoughts on it. So I'm actually I, I I have that story in here. We'll get to that in just a second. We'll we'll cover that. In fact, why don't we? Let's just talk about it right now. Yeah, why, why wait? So uh, before we do that, just really really briefly, I will mention our friends over at DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code DO Unplugged, all one word, lowercase, to get yourself a great deal. DigitalOcean is Linux rigs up in the cloud. Now we all know the cloud means somebody else's server. That's legit. Let's be honest. Right. That's right? what it means. That's why you got to make sure they're damn good servers. Like with data centers all over the world Have where you, you want them. Have you seen those pics? Uh, oh, data, dude. Digital Ocean's data centers Ooh. are beautiful. Yeah, they are. Seriously, I, as somebody who used to rack up servers, I look at that and I go, wow. They got, they have, they're better than me. They got <laughs> way better than me, dude. Uh, they have great, they have great infrastructure. Linux throughout the entire stack. It is SSDs for all of the disk I.O. Great CPUs, tier one bandwidth. $5 a month is the starting price. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. You get 512 megabytes of RAM, a, uh, a 512 uh, gigabyte of uh, a terabyte of transfer. There we Jeez. go. Those are the units. I know. This beer is mu- so this... much. I mean, it's hard to account for. I can't believe this. Like, I've had half this beer, and I think it's already hitting my head. I tell you what. Because, uh, you know. I think be... DigitalOcean is just such an amazing deal. You, you're not ready for it. Well, let's be honest. I, uh, I, I've upgraded recently to the $10 machine. And, oh, I use the $10, too. Oh, it's yes. nice. It is. In fact, the pricing you structure... You can do whatever you want on a $10 rig. And really, what I what I have done is I started at $5, and I've gone up to $10, and that's where you get the one gigabyte of memories at the $10 rig. And I love that, because then I get 30 gigabytes of SSD, 2 terabytes of transfer. But they say their most popular plan is the uh, is the one that has two cores. I don't know. You know, I, I one of the things I really like about DigitalOcean is their super nice dashboard makes it very clear to monitor your CPU usage. And in the, in the early days of my DigitalOcean usage, I, I I think I was coming at this from a perspective, I need way more RAM, I need way more CPU, right. and I was overbuilding my machines. And I would go look at the charts and go, well, these things are kind of just sitting here. And so I started to realize that when you have unbelievably fast bandwidth, and when you have all SSDs for the entire stack, and you're running a low, small install of Linux, it doesn't have the graphics stack, doesn't right. have any of that crap, you can get away with... I mean, it feels like you're stealing like it. Nothing. It's so cheap. It's so great. And so uh, for me, the $10 plan has really been the sweet spot. They say the 21 is the most popular. The 21, the $20 plan is their most popular. But pff, 5 and 10 has been solid for me. And we, you know what? We just, whenever we need a new rig. See, like for me, I like the $40 for, for build machines. Really? Like you were talking yeah. about like, oh, oh DKMS, you got to compile the ZFS module. Do you, but then what, are you doing it hourly or do you run them all the time? You, you can just, with the API, spin up yeah. a new machine. yeah. Run your script, yeah. grab the compiled yep. module, yep. shut it down. Yeah. Yeah, that is something else we're doing more now. We 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 are spinning it's, just, it's so nice. We are spinning machines up and down for shows now that we don't need running when we're not live. It makes it very economical. And, it's and just digital only there when you need it. They're honey badger about it. That's why they, they created a really good API for all of that. Uh, they also have great documentation. They have one click installations of apps and all of the OSs. Like core OSs. We'll be talking more about uh, the opinion What's that of one on the bottom right right there, Chris. Free, visited? Is that I, how you say it? I, th- I think that's based on sl- uh, Slackware. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's based on Slackware. Uh, they also have Debian, Fedora, CentOS, and Ubuntu. Uh, you can check it all out. They have one-click applications of just a single app or the entire stack. It is sweet. DigitalOcean.com. Check them out and use our promo code DOUnplugged. Wow, I'm glad you brought more than one of these beers because I think I'm going to have another one. before. You know what I should do? Okay, I'll just, before the next ad, I'm going to finish this beer, and we'll just see how I do. We'll see how I do. We'll just see how we do. Uh, okay, so uh, you heard Mr. Devlin begin the conversation. Let's pick that right back up. Uh, Linux can't keep you safe if you don't 
update it. Pretty, pretty obvious coming from Greg Cage, but he, it goes further than that. Uh, so there is a core OS fest in Berlin. Man, OSCON, guys, I, I've been going to OSCON for years. You guys are great, but I'll tell you what. You're up against Google I.O. and Core OS Fest in Berlin. That kind of sounds fun. And Greg's over at Core OS Fest because he's involved with that project, like I was just saying. We'll be talking about it in a moment. And uh, if you're not familiar, we have interviewed him in the past. He is the Linux kernel developer and maintainer of the Stable Branch, or sometimes called the LTS Branch, as well as the USB subsystem in the Linux kernel and, and many other important subsystems that people just frankly didn't want to do. So good guy Greg picked him <laughs> up. And he, he was saying, for the last 15 years in the Linux kernel community, they've been following a rule to fix things as soon as possible. The Linux community fixes bugs and then pushes them out so the vendors can then push them to their users. He talked about, for example, a bug that they fixed and then pushed the new release and got it out there. But then three years later, someone realized that there's a security bug. You could go to a local root user and you could go uh, and you could go away. You could just go run around. <laughs> Turns out Red Hat and Seuss had to go back and fix all of their old stuff. We had a very bad history of keeping bugs alive for a long time. Somebody did a check of it and most known live bugs in the last five years in these systems. There are things that people know and they know how to exploit out there. They're not closed. And that's a problem for infrastructure. Now, it's kind of a bit of a ramble, but what he's saying is if you're following a mainline secure patched kernel, you're going to be safe. But if you're using like a Red Hat Enterprise kernel, they're not necessarily taking all of the fixes. Following all the hard work that Greg does to put right. those patches into there. And you assume they are, but he's saying they're not. In fact, a lot of the vulnerabilities in the last five years have been ones we already had patches for. They just haven't oh, made it back. Oh, that's rough. He says Android is another uh, example. What does he say? We have a very bad history of keeping bugs alive for a long time. Yeah. And that's not what Linux should be known for. Yeah. So he points out Android also has issues. Uh, he says, basically, direct quote, your machine is insecure unless you're running my kernel or based on my kernel or at least based on another one. If you're not taking these fixes, then it's insecure. He has a very clear message for companies and communities building products around Linux. You have to be able to update your machines. You have to be able to provide a system where your machines are updated and you constantly take advantage of it. Man, that is so true. That is so true. Like the, 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 the LTSs and the Red Hat Enterprise Linuxes out there are great and super stable platforms for enterprises to target. But if they're not pulling in the fixes that Greg's putting in, then we are not taking advantage of one of the fundamental features of an open source operating system. Right. Well said. It's like a commercial model applied to something that's a moving target. And, and you know, he's building these LTS kernels that aren't updated as frequently as the main kernel. In fact, it's Right, many. they should be a pretty easy target, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And they're updated and they're maintained for years. Daredelvin, I wanted to have you pick it back up. Go ahead. Basically, I think this is the equivalent of Greg's uh, FU to NVIDIA, after Lena said, uh, basically. And maybe spur attention to the issue from the distros by having the pressure. Now, I hope that that's the intention there. So you're saying this is his middle finger to, to yeah, the, the overall basically. industry? <laughs> yeah, ba- basically, basically, in a way, what's the effect he's going to come out? He's not winning any, any more for people using his kernel. Basically, he's just saying, yeah, start adopting the patches in my work. I've been working on this. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess the thing about the Greg, Greg's kernel, too, is it's not updated as frequently as the mainline kernel. So there is a lot less cycle there you have to follow. All right, so you're on a Pricity right now. Yes. If you check for updates, do you have a kernel 4.6? It came out two days ago. I'm just curious about that uh, because I think Arch got it pretty quick. And 
Apricity, oh, yeah. Wes, if uh, if if I recall, it's it's arch based, pre limited customization. Reminds us a lot of Anagros. It does, yeah. You've stuck with it for a couple of weeks now. How come? Well, it, it, it's been working well. Uh, mm, I'm not seeing a Maybe you already have it. Maybe I do. Nope. 454-1. Okay. So you just checked – you just checked uh, – you, you just did a package update? And I have not yet looked what's they, – they, they give you one custom repo. I have not looked at everything that's installed there. I don't know if my kernel's from there or not. So uh, I have – yeah, I have Linux 5 – I have Linux 4.5.4. Now, hmm. okay. So I'm just curious. Overall, Apricity seems like so. You had something. You had what? Did you say? Do you remember which kernel? Four five four. Okay, yeah. So it seems pretty up to date. Not quite four six yet. Right. But what are your couple of weeks in thoughts now with Apricity? Just like as a super quick follow up review. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. I've had a bunch of sixteen oh four on here. There's Linux Mint on this laptop. Apricity, uh, Antigros has been on here in the past, and I've I've always enjoyed Antigros. So Apricity seems like a little bit of a competition. They they have a kind of like stripped down, or at least so they say, version of GNOME. So it's pretty lightweight. They don't install all of the GNOME apps or all the dependencies. In uh, fact, when I when you sat down the laptop at first, like is that elementary OS? Yeah, you know, and it's pretty clean, uh, clean style. Seems to run well, and at the you know I have access to Arch, so it's familiar. If I need to install things, all the configuration is the same as yeah. upstream. Yeah. Uh, and they they come with the uh, the TLP power saving tools by default, which, are, in my experience, have done a very good job. So, uh, oh, it also has the ni- nice power line uh, terminal. Oh yeah, that is cool. For, uh, that is a cool VI and, yeah. and Bash and ZSH. So Apricity gets the uh, the uh, West Payne not of approval. Like I don't know if I would install. You know, I'm building a nice new desktop. I don't know that I would install it as my as my be all end all, but as a laptop I use for the show and a few other things, it, it hasn't been bad. Oh, nice. It might also be my, you know, it's nice to have an Arch graphical install just as like a, something where I can use Gparted if I need to or Rescue CD. Yeah. So I can see Apricity being that as yeah. well. Cool. There you go. A little quick update on Apricity. And uh, if you guys are looking for something that does stay fairly current but is interesting, it might be worth a look. I kind of want to try it on a machine. Uh, I don't. I do not like this. The, the, they, we have been covering different iterations of the FBI and their attack on Tor and Tor developers now for a couple of weeks, and this just this feels awful. So the FBI has a case where uh, they used uh, Tor, an exploit against Tor, which now appears to be potentially an exploit against Firefox, to get this guy, and Mozilla wants the FBI to reveal the details of the exploit ahead of the trial because if the FBI refuses to do so, which so far it has, then it would be revealed publicly in the case, which would mean that anyone could just jump on an actual in-the-wild exploit right now. That's bad, bad stuff. So, It's an interesting, it's an interesting argument. Yeah, then, and especially since you know if it is going to be in the public domain or you know public record anyway, I wonder I wonder if they have a what what their case even just internally is for not doing it. It it also ties into like obviously the FBI knew about it before and is willfully deciding that it's better serves the public interest for them to keep it secret than to share yeah, it with the public. Yeah, yeah. So where does that fall now? So does anybody in the mumble room have a good argument for why why Mozilla needs access to this information before the trial since it's all open source anyways? Go ahead if anybody does. I have well, a, yeah. In the end, having more information will then will, will will be useful if not only to construct a good case. Well, I guess I, I guess. I so why but why hold it so close? Why so is the FBI? I guess here's another way to ask the question. To me, it seems obvious. Mozilla wants this information so they can get a patch out there as fast yep. as possible for its public information. It's in the public domain. 
The FBI, though, why are they not revealing it to Mozilla privately? Couldn't they do it like with an NDA or something like that? Like, why? What's the motivation there? That I don't understand. Right, at least let them patch so that they can have something ready to ship when yeah. it is released publicly. Seems well, like, but then then you are giving preferential treatment, right? As a as a public entity, in a way, this comes a lot as if you start being okay with private talks. The transparency that they've already been accused so much of you now will will further damage their reputation. And so, yeah, yeah. I, to me, it seems like the FBI goes on and on all day long about how they want uh, companies, private companies, to work with them to save us all from terrorism. Mm-hmm. But then, as soon as private companies want to protect citizens from cyber attacks, uh, the FBI don't have time for you. It's just kind of a little uh, sucks. I'm glad Colonel Linux just made it here because I, I actually put this uh, story in the updates just for him. Uh, There's been a sudden increase in TeamViewer account compromises, even TeamViewer accounts that have long, complicated passwords that have only been used on that TeamViewer account. Uh, I guess there has been a wave of TeamViewer hacks. Mr. Colonel Linux, are you aware that there's two-factor authentication for that TeamViewer? I was, although I don't use the account feature of of, uh, of TeamViewer. I, you know, that, I think that is primarily reserved for companies that use it as their primary source of, of remote administration. And, and the thing is, for me, it is just a it's a way to help mom with their computer. It's a way to help dad when he needs something and I'm away, or you know, a couple friends. So I don't, I don't, I don't. I, if I have a TeamViewer account, I certainly don't use it. And you know, if you sign in, then you can save all the computers you connected to. I'm asking for one-time passwords every time I'm doing that, right? Mm, so I'm okay. getting the team. I'm getting the partner ID and I'm getting the password. I'm fixing the problem and then I'm done with it. Problem solved. All right. Then my uh, my next story was also put in here for you. You really showed up just at the right time. It's kind of magical. I plan um, these things. So th- the question has been asked, has the Ubuntu 16.04 network manager been fixed? And I started digging around in the bug and it is super depressing. First of all, the answer is no. The bug has not been fixed. And second of all, uh, the answer over the launchpad bug was to go file a GNOME bug. And then when you go read the GNOME bug, the GNOME bug completely misses the point. All Everything is lost. They start thinking it's like some sort of DNS resolve issue. Everything is lost in translation. Uh, Kernel Linux, I know this has been sort of the, the number one, I think, I think the number one bug you've been struggling with in deployments uh, have you found a workaround for this particular issue? This is the one where you, you wake up from sleep and all of a sudden network manager is just gone. Oh, I've had yeah, that so, problem too. Yeah. Yeah, so let's be clear. There is no deployments. Noah has not done any deployments with 16.04 because that is a show-stopping issue. In fact, so much so that I don't even use it on my laptop. I can't because I need to be able to access a network when I bring my laptop out of sleep. And restarting every three or four times just isn't an option. Um if it has been fixed or somebody has done anything about it, I haven't seen it. I, I might have noticed. a I might have a workaround for you. Okay, that would be got, good. I got that problem on my Ubuntu Mate laptop as well. I had to turn off and turn on the cart with fconfig to get it to work. I've had to reboot to get it to come back. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like the command line utility nmtui-connect should you should be able to use that. I was also you were also mentioning talking about uh, using a system D uh, what was it system? system D network D. Tell me about system D network D West. You you will need obviously then some other thing to manage the wireless side uh, cuz it'll just handle like the link side not the wireless. But if if maybe what okay so I was ho- what I was hoping you would say is say you were just going to connect to Wi-Fi and it was the same network nothing had changed that you could just use that to bring the link up and maybe it would just connect to the same Wi-Fi network. Yeah, you'd probably need WK supplicant, but if yeah. if you're doing the same network, then absolutely, that's a good case. So, uh, system D, network D. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that could be another way to uh, get the interface to come up if you're just connecting. If to the you same have Wi-Fi. simple needs, yeah, or a con man is another popular. This is a real bummer, though. This is a major issue that we have gotten a lot of people that have written in about too. It's just, oh man, I really, it really is unfortunate that this has sort of been punted around. Blaster, you had something you want to add? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, when we ran into this issue on the XPS at Linux Fest Northwest, actually, uh, Paige busted out uh, Network Manager CLI and right, uh, right. And fixed it that way. Yeah, there's, so there's another potential. That might be another workaround for you, kernel Linux, that isn't too painful to use. Yeah, you know, yeah, so I'm just going to throw this out there. You know another workaround is? Just use 1404 because everything still works in it. <laughs> Super, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah, okay. Okay, sure. <laughs> you can also distance yourself further from Greg's kernel. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, to me, that is just such not an answer. It's just, it's it's not even an option for, for me. I'm sure it is for some people, but in 2016, to be told to install 1404, that's rough for me. That man. is rough. That is rough. Uh, okay. Especially on a something where, like, wireless is relevant, where I probably want newer packages. Yeah, okay. Preach it, Wes. Preach it, Wes. Preach it, Wes. Especially if you have yourself a brand new laptop. You know, quite literally, uh, I don't know, but somebody could write in and go look at the Oryx prospects and see if there's features that aren't being lit up by that old kernel. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah, I wonder if, like, the we'll in- send it right to kernel Linux. Those, those, new, those new later generation. What's that thing got in it, uh, kernel Linux? A, a sixth generation Which- Intel? The, Which the, one now? The Oryx. The Oryx is sixth generation. Yep. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder. I, although they do do hardware enablement in fourteen oh four, so it's possible. Mm. Yeah, it's possible. That's true. All, All right. right. So the grand experiment continues. I am now on the uh, the second beer of the show. Uh, you know, I I have not I have not had a beer or any other drink since the last show. So I think maybe that's why it's hitting me so hard. Oh wow. Yeah, because it's just. Uh, so, anyways, we'll I cannot s- claim that, folks. <laughs> So let's see if we can make it through the Tink Spot. Are you ready? You want to see if we can let's do this? Do let's, let's just see if we make it. Now, everybody, everybody right now, stop what you're doing. Are you driving? Doesn't matter. Pull over to the side of the road. Or or just do it while you're driving. That's totally fine. Wait, don't do that. Don't do that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I lost my... Uh... We need our ambiance. Yeah, I, I have it set to keep playing, Wes. <laughs> I don't... Under, I, when, the, when the loop stops... Oh, there we go. Here we go. Boom. There we go. Okay, as I was saying, don't don't actually do this while you're driving. But if, if you're doing anything but driving right now, do me a favor and go to linux.ting.com. Go over there to support the show and learn more about the Ting service. Not only will you get a discount, which is great. Ting's going to give you some money if you sign up, either off your first device or just towards your uh, account if you've got a compatible device. Oh, and by the way, you might have a compatible device because you know what, Wes? They got GSM and CDMA. Pretty much everything works. It's hard to find it. You Shoot. have to like, go out of your way to buy it. Shoot. Shoot, you know what doesn't work on CDMA or GSM? This bell. There, I'm done with the nope. loop. Nope, analog only. Yeah, analog only. There's no there's no SIM slot for this bell. But just about every other device that does have a SIM slot will probably work over at Ting. Go there, check them out. They have no contracts, no other termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. Flat $6 for just your line, plus anything Uncle Sam's going to take. And then your usage. Way simpler, way more straightforward, no crazy gimmicks. Plus, they have really good customer service. When you call Ting, you actually talk to a real person, which not everybody believes, Wes. Some people think it's not true. Thanks for calling Ting. This is Isabel speaking. How can I help you? Uh, Hello? Thanks for calling Ting. This is Isabel speaking. How can I... Hey, this is Isabel at Ting. For service in English, 
press one. Para el servicio en español, presione dos. To talk about phones, press one. To talk about something else, press two. To speak to an operator, press zero. Please hold while we direct your call to the first available agent. Your time is important to us. Thank you for your patience. Ba, ba, da, ba. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Linux.ting.com. Go there. You can talk to real human beings. They got great dashboards. Uh, they're also doing a giveaway of the Galaxy S7, which I have a feeling after tomorrow's I.O. keynote is going to be a VR powerhouse. But uh, you can find out more about that at their blog. Just start there by going to Linux.ting.com. Linux.ting.com. Oh, I made it to that ad, too. Well, except for I burped at the end. Linux.ting.com. Well, see what happens when you bring in 9% uh, uh, whatever A show happens. Mm, this, a show yeah. about Linux. This okay. was supposed to be a Windows program. So I there think. was a conversation that we had towards the end of last week's Linux Action Show about entitlement. And we took on the, uh, we took on the conversation of part magic. And, and Kernel Linux, would you just super quickly recap sort of your position on that for people that didn't catch last but assume most of them did? So essentially, uh, software called Parted Magic, great piece of software, was available for free for a long, long time. Company decides that they're bringing significant value into the enterprise and they could charge a couple bucks for it. And a bunch of people complained about it. So now they have dropped the price and I'm upset. You're upset that they dropped the price. I'm upset. I'm upset that a company that works very hard and diligent and has a proven track record in the marketplace for making quality, valuable software cannot charge the uh, cannot charge a small nominal fee without the internet erupting into constant whining and complaining about something they feel entitled to. And not only are they too cheap and uh, too cheap to pay for the software, then on top of that, they are too lazy to go torrent it, which is what they would do for proprietary software. And if that's not bad enough, then they have to go write blogs and complain and whine about it. Ooh, there's a lot in there. Oh boy. I'm glad you're here on the Linux Unplugged couch this week, uh, Noah, because uh, when I hear entitlement, I'm not sure I'm hearing what – I don't think of the same thing. When I hear entitlement, I think of people who believe they deserve something uh, even if that's not necessarily true, if the value exchange isn't necessarily there for that. You follow what I'm saying, Wes? Yes, I believe so. Uh, and I feel like the situation with part magic is more like you gave me something, then you changed it, and then I freaked the F out. And it's also I, complicated by the nature of uh, markets in that, I mean, you have to, if, that, if those are your people, user base, you have to, you know, maybe they lower the price because that's what the market's demanding of them. Yeah, okay. Moral, bringing morality into that can be hmm. tricky, whereas in the open source world, I think it's, it's a different picture. All right, Colonel Linux, what do you think? I think that the project, that when it started back as a free project, when they were giving it away for free, was a vastly different tool and had a vastly different place in 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 the IT sphere as it does today. Yeah. I don't. I could not. I fundamentally could not do certain aspects of my job without part of magic. And the thing that I was do, using it for the other week was I had a client had a laptop. They were sending it in to uh, the manufacturer to get some work done, and they had sensitive information that had to be wiped off of it. Well, new SSDs, if you're not familiar with it, have a are all encrypted by default. And you can simply change that encryption key on the hard disk, which essentially, for layman's terms, erases the SSD instantaneously. And I wanted to access that secure erase function, and the easiest way to do that is with the tools built into Part of Magic. And I, as a person who have used Part of Magic numerous times before and am fully capable of torrenting it and have actually paid for it in the past a couple of times, more than once, I still paid 
to download it again because I, I want to continue supporting that project. Are you familiar with DBAN, and does that not meet your needs necessarily? DBAN will write zeros to every block, right? But with a solid state, you actually have more space on the drive than the computer is aware of. And what will happen is where leveling will kick in, and it it will start writing to – Yeah, you're right. So that actually won't work. So what what you need to do is the hard drive is encrypted by default. Even if you don't know it is, it is. And so if you change that encryption key on on the hard disk, then what happens is essentially the data might still be there, but it becomes useless. Effectively, it's erased. And that's a feature built in at the hardware level of the SSD. Uh, Daredevil, go ahead. So basically, I think there is actually a benefit of people using these route versus the other route. What will be? They will pick up the source code and uh, basically uh, just lower the cost and make it freely available. It actually is a good argument against those that usually say if you put it under a free license, people will just take it out and make it freely available. People actually took the effort of saying, okay, we're thinking that you're going to want somewhat that they consider unreasonable. I don't know what the figures are, but if people that are consuming the product are looking at it and then saying, all right, you're increasing the cost and now it's a problem. It's apparently if there was a cost before, it means that the problem is not with the existence of the cost, it's with the increase. They want to keep support, right? But but Dar, if I pay for Part of Magic per the terms of open source, I can give you a copy of it. I can upload it onto my site and let you download it for free. I can upload it to Torrent. So the only thing you're paying for is to is is A, to support the company and the product that they have, but B, to use the convenient little download link that they have on their site. Sure. Okay. So let's I want to I want to give a ch- I want to give Wimpy a chance to jump in here because I want to talk to him specifically from the standpoint and I'd actually like to hear from from actually I'll, maybe I'll start with Richard Richard are you are you on mic right now because I'd like to actually get your perspective too if you're I am indeed uh, when you hear entitlement does is this matching up with what your mental uh, model of entitlement in the open source community is because I could I have I have one two three four something like that links in the show notes of people who have blogged. Over the years now, about how entitled the open source community is, um, and I actually have started to feel some of it myself as somebody who creates something free and puts it out there. And at times, uh, like there are there are at times things that feel like they cross the line of what is expected of me as a content producer. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that's just me being grumpy. And sometimes it does feel like it's crossing the line. So, Richard, when you hear entitlement, what does it mean to you? And the state of entitlement in the open source community. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think you've pretty much covered, you know, what it is. I mean, you know, I would simply define it as, as uh, you know, well, users demanding without being prepared to actually help fix the issue. And I'm not saying they need to do it themselves, but you know, the there's plenty of people who want lots of things for nothing and are not willing to give back anything for it. Now, my perspective on entitlement is with my open SUSE hat firmly on, and this is open SUSE and not SUSE because that's a very different dynamic, um, is, I mean, you know, I, I run a project where, for example, we don't take money and we're not, we're like, we're anti-interested in it. I mean, it's more hassle than it's worth. And it doesn't actually solve any problems. I'd much rather take a contribution from somebody than any cash. And so with the whole parted magic thing, which is a totally different project, but I, I, I have a, I struggle with the, some of these projects where 
like money is thrown around like it's the magical solver and supporter of everything <laughs> because i i don't believe i don't believe that i i i've seen far too many open source projects where a simple contribution be it code or advocacy or something is worth millions more than my 10 bucks hmm uh wimpy do you ever struggle with a sense of entitlement in the community especially since there is people that are contributing on Patreon and things like that. So I've got a tangential point about um, entitlement, which I'll come back to later. Okay, perfect. But here's a kind of entitlement. Talking about a bug that affects you and saying it's widespread and it's affecting lots of people and you have lots of feedback to say this is a big issue. And then 10 minutes later, I go off and find the bug reports for that bug. And I find three bug reports about Wi-Fi not working right. after suspend. Yeah. And in one bug report, eight people have said this bug affects them. In the other bug report, one person has reported it. No one else has said it affects them. And in the third bug report, one person has reported it. Nobody else says it affects them. Yet, this is apparently a widespread issue. And I, I agree it's a widespread issue because I've also heard about this anecdotally as well. This is... So far, my exact observation of this particular uh, network manager issue. Yeah. Now, the entitlement that people feel here is that this bug should be fixed. Right. But the very least you can do is just go and click on the bit that says, this bug affects me, mm-hmm. just to add to the count, because well this said. is what brings it to the attention of the people that are going to resolve these mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. If you're prepared to invest a little bit more, then actually provide some you know, details, some uh, a reproducible um, test case, for example, which some people have done in this bug report. So, uh, and I was reading another blog earlier where somebody was whining about how they've had this bug with a particular Ethernet controller not working and it hasn't worked since 13.0 something or other. And they cite their own blog going back over five years, but at no point in any of their blog posts is there a link to a bug that they filed or contributed to. So this is a kind of entitlement that really rubs me up the wrong way because somehow by yelling into the void of the internet, you are somehow alerting people to the fact that you're unhappy that something needs fixing, but you're doing absolutely nothing to solve the problem. Right, yelling into the void. That frustrates me. (laughs) Well, it seems to be also sort of... Um, not taking advantage of a huge feature of using an open source product where the bug tracker is actually out in the open. Right. Uh, just as an example, uh, when we rolled out the new uh, OBS production rig that we covered in Sunday's Linux Action Show, when we booted up and realized that Andergross wasn't building the uh, ZFS module before it created the init image, uh, yeah, that, the nice thing we could do there is we could file a bug about that. And so that way, down the road, when we do updates, hopefully we don't have an issue. But you're right. It seems like even the most basic, even the most basic, not even having to create the bug, just saying it even impacts you is too much to ask. Maybe it's because you have to create an account or something stupid like that. I know, but it's like the least you can do. And also, we've got these open bug trackers in all of the distribution projects. Everyone has them. And try and do that with Microsoft or Apple. Mm. Or Android even, mm-hmm. because frankly, if you look at issues on Android, you're just, again, lo- lots of people with the same issue talking on a Google group somewhere and nothing ever getting done about it. Now, Colonel Linux, you hear this all the time. What are your thoughts? Um, I, you know, I 
try to be a good community member, file bug reports when they come up. And, you know, certainly I'm not saying that everyone is like this, but there are times when I have had an issue and I go to file a bug report and I provide the best information that I know how to provide. And the assumption is that if that is incorrect or further information is needed, that people could just politely ask for it. And more than once, I've had a very negative experience uh, with the people that respond to bugs being upset about a bug being opened by something, um, you know, for various different reasons. And I, and I think that the part of it is an attitude problem that needs to change. When people are taking their time to give you feedback about a project or, or about software, you know, take that, you know, be respectful and appreciative that somebody is volunteering their time. Yes, you volunteered your time to, to write that code to begin with, but somebody is essentially doing troubleshooting for you. And so if, if, you know, if you have to work with them a little bit, come alongside them and walk with them and say, this is what, this is how I need the information to be provided to me, or this is more information I need. They need to be open and receptive to doing that and not just bite people's head off because they didn't get exactly what they wanted, exactly how they wanted to hear it. That is However, true as well. That yeah. does happen. Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah, but they're really busy too. I mean, you can see why, right? They just don't have time. They just want you to get it right. But you do have to hit on that good. Like as you know, as a developer, you you don't want something where it's like, yeah, hey, sometimes I get this thing fixed, please. But you, well, it's, no, go on. No, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just responding to Chris's point of you know they're busy. That's fine. But the reality is, if that happens and you start to and you continue to become frustrated with people, then the natural reaction is. And this actually just happened. I had a bug with a Bluetooth keyboard, and uh, I went back just because I don't really care what other people think. And I went and posted in the bug report and said, "This is how I fixed it." Uh, and but then I went back and posted on a form, uh, which is where the rest of the discussion had been occurring because nobody wanted to participate in the bug report. Uh, yeah, and that's yeah. what that's what you're going to get. Is you're going to get right. people that will they'll just go somewhere else and talk about it then. Uh, and that's an in, that's an interesting point in itself because I think a lot of people have the misconception that discussing bugs in the forum is tantamount to raising a bug report and that somehow mm. developers are going to see discussions in forums and i can uh, with the exception of the ubuntu mate community forums which i'm active in i can tell you for a fact ubuntu developers and the flavor developers are not looking through the forums for bug reports. Right. There is only one place that developers right. are looking for bug reports, and that's Launchpad. So if it's not in Launchpad, it never happened. And from the developer's perspective, you need that workflow. Like, you, you'd go yeah. insane trying to find bugs. Every, like, you need one place for your bugs that so you can just go down and solve them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Wimpy, you had a second point you wanted to make, though. Um. Yes. Um. This is more about um Linux compatible hardware and companies like System seventy six and Entroware, and it's a different type of entitlement. And I feel that people uh go and buy whatever computer it is they get. Usually a cost based purchase. You know, everyone's. You know, they've got a finite amount of spare cash, so they're they're choosing a laptop that, that they can afford at a price point. But then they feel entitled that Linux should run on this computer hmm. that they've bought that was designed yeah. to run Windows. And, and uh, then some of those people get pissy and shitty when it doesn't work, and they have a sense of entitlement about They don't the appreciate how you know, much work has gone into getting yeah. the support that we do have. I, I have a lot of thoughts about that, too, because also one of the things that fills our inboxes, in fact, uh, I was just kind of going back through the history of last just to see when our anniversary is, which is June 10th. Ooh. And uh, I was looking, you know, what the, you know what our first episode was about? 
And this is an issue that has literally plagued our show from episode one now for a decade. Do you know what episode one? I mean, it was about a lot of things. It was about the new Ubuntu release. It was about a lot of things. But like the headline topic. Wireless support? Nope. Although that was a big issue back then. That was a, that's a damn good guess, Wes. That's really close. Uh, no. Installing Linux on. Oh, go ahead, Colonel Linux. You can say it. The MacBook. Ooh. Yeah, the MacBook. The MacBook. Which is a big one. Which right? I, so I want to talk about that just for a second. So let's actually dedicate a little bit of time to talking about that. So first, that means we go to Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged where you can get their new discount, which is awesome because this service is super valuable. It is an entire learning platform which is built on top of Linux to teach you all of the ins and out about Linux and all of the really cool technologies that you can make money off of <laughs> using Linux. And I'm talking everything, including even all the, all the way out there to Android development, PHP, Python, Ruby, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. They now have 2,391 self-paced courses. I think for me, the scenario-based labs one of the best things they've ever done. But... If I wasn't such a loner and antisocial, I would say probably it's instructor mentoring. I mean, in terms of value in the service, instructor mentoring is incredible, especially for this kind of courseware. They have graded server exercises, which is dope, automatically grades your, your actions. Why not? Why do you have to wait around? Check them out, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. And I don't, I don't normally mention it, but uh, Mr. Radio there in the mumbles uh, pointed it out, and he's absolutely right. Uh, if you go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, li- just go there, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Look around, and then if you're looking for a gig, they are hiring two telecommute positions. Hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, this is the great thing. Is Linux Academy isn't just a great learning resource. They're managed really well. Uh, they They're have, part of the community that they service. You they, know? They, have been, food in it. they have been really, really smart about the way they've structured their company. And they're growing like crazy to make sure their content stays relevant. And they're like even the old stuff. Make Plus, sure I bet if you worked there, they, uh, they got some good training there. <laughs> I would I would just guess. <laughs> LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. That's a double ding plug. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, Mr. Colonel Linux, I'm going to open the floor to you. As far as folks that are going out there and grabbing hardware, uh, Noah kind of has mastered the art of going into Best Buy and purchasing the Linux machine, but it doesn't always work out, and you've got to have thoughts on this topic, so I open the floor to you. Okay. So uh, I, are you looking for just general advice, or are you looking for past experience? Both. Okay. So I, you're right. There is, there is no I – can, I can say with almost – Full, uh, full authority that there isn't a computer manufacturer out there that I have not owned and installed Linux on at some point. Um, there are some that tend to be better, better than others. These days, you'd be surprised at how many companies are using the same ODM. And so really, you're buying a different brand, but it's the same thing on the inside. Maybe the chassis is a little bit different. Most computers these days are coming with Intel insights. And, you know, Skylake issues aside, if it says Intel on it, it probably will work right out of the box with Linux. Wireless, sound, video, all that good yeah, stuff. You know, I, I got to disagree. I've bought two ThinkPads in a row uh, over the last few years that came with wireless cards and a Dell that had to have their wireless cards replaced to an Intel. I've never had to replace the wireless card in a ThinkPad. In fact, it would be difficult to do so because the the thing they actually whitelist their wireless cards. Wait, 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 card, so, wait. Right. don't you wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you remember? Didn't we have some issues with that uh, idea? With that that ThinkPad? Well, that's that we, not. 
that's not a thing pad. That's an idea pad. They, they are okay. so totally sorry. different, Chris. Uh, no, well, no, they are. <sighs> they are. They are. I mean, okay. That's, they all right. are. Okay. Scoots, okay. You know, everything. All right. Okay. Well, so so okay. So the idea pad, yes, and the idea pad is it came with Broadcoms, and so that's going to be the one exception, right? The one oh. thing that. Well, no, not 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 the idea pad, but Broadcom in general is going to be yes. the one exception you're going to find when you go into a store. And but that's easy enough to do, right? From Windows, you can right click, look on the device manager, and just kind of take a gander at what's inside that machine before you buy. And if it has that's a Broadcom a chip. Broadcom chip, just stay away from it. The second thing I look at is if it has a Broadcom chip, but maybe it's a super good price. And I'll tell you, actually. The, they have actually gotten in 1604, Broadcom is actually much easier to deal with. In the installer, it recognizes you have a Broadcom chip and will just say, plug me into the internet and tell me that you want me to use this driver, and it does everything for you. Um, and I, I, had, I just dealt with that with uh, one of those, H, those little HPs. But the, uh, if, it, if it has a Broadcom chip and I want it to be a, a super smooth experience, I'll flip the computer over and see if there are screws on the bottom. If there's <laughs> screws on the bottom... The the high probability is you can take that bottom panel off and just swap that Wi-Fi card. And as long as you're gentle, you won't yeah. break any of the pins. Yeah. Then well, you won't have a problem. Yeah, Wi-Fi it's for is people who like to mess with computers. <laughs> Damn it, Leo. Uh, really? You're right. That, those are good tips. Uh, so, right. Wimpy, I want to hear your thoughts in regards to the ThinkPads. Uh, uh, well, in, with regards to ThinkPads, I've had to change uh, Wi-Fi cards in ThinkPads, and in many cases, I've had to actually flash a modified BIOS in order to, in order for it to accept the Wi-Fi card I want to put in it, rather than the select few cards that um, Lenovo have, you know, allowed to be used. And the same goes for hard disks as well. I've even had to do that for for hard disks. Wow. Now that said. I think I can see one, two, three, four, five, six ThinkPads from where I'm sitting at the moment, and that's not one of them in the house. But I am a changed man, and I'm going to tell you about this. Um, when people buy computers that were designed to run Windows, or Mac OS X, but mm-hmm. predominantly Windows, mm-hmm. and then try to install Linux on it and have issues, that's unfortunate. And yes, people have to get into this business of do they potentially replace the Wi-Fi chip and all the rest of it, because these days it's generally the Wi-Fi chip. A lot of the reasons why people say they have bought a particular laptop is because it's significantly cheaper than a laptop designed to run Linux from the likes mm. of Entroware, System76, Zaris, and Think Penguin, and the many others that are out there. And I think because open source Linux, Linux distributions are free of cost, there is an assumption that it should be a cheaper laptop because it comes pre-installed with a Linux distribution. And the reason why it is not is because the likes of System76 and Entryware and the others don't have the volume of sales Mm -hmm. for economies of scale to come into effect. So they cannot compete on price with the likes of Dell and Lenovo and HP and so on. So if you want to buy a computer and you intend to run Linux on it, save up a little bit longer. Buy your computer from one of those companies that are supporting Linux as a first-class citizen because the more people that vote with their money, what will happen is they will be able to improve their margins and the costs of those computers from those Linux-supporting companies will come down as their sales volumes increase. There's that, and you legitimately will probably have a less 
uh, challenging Linux experience. You will not be having a conversation on an online user group saying, what Wi-Fi chipset card do I need to get to (laughs) go in a Lenovo Yoga 3 or whatever it was? Now, kernel Linux, though, you and I, I know you and I agree with Wimpy, like, just totally. Like, you, we, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I may have been System 76's first or second public customer. Like, I am, I am a diehard. You've been that brand for years. Yeah, so that's over a decade. Uh, and, but even yet, you and I still on occasion either build the PCs or we go out and grab a ThinkPad. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So it's never a first choice, right? Like you're right. A hundred percent agree with what everything Wimpy just said about supporting manufacturers that produce computers. And if there was a System 76 store in every single city. You just went away? You just good? You're good? Oh, because you like to go into the store. Well, I think he, he found a System 76 store. He's distracted now. <laughs> I, I we thought, can forgive I him. You should, have, you should have seen the sales they had. And, and what Wimpy is talking about, you know, if and when people support them enough that they get their margins down, and, or, or margins up rather, and we get to the point where they can offer, you know, a more cost competitive product, that's going to be even, that'll make this argument even less relevant. But at the, at the moment, there are times when, for example, you have three days to switch somebody to Linux and yeah. that person is there and we need to have them a laptop and we have to get it here installed and rolled mm-hmm. out in 48 mm-hmm. hours. You mm-hmm. don't have a choice but to go into the store. And I think there is an advantage, an unspoken advantage rather, of buying from a company that isn't totally invested in the operating system. When you buy a MacBook, Apple needs you to use macOS because that's where the longevity of their product is, right? Is is really in the whole experience, not just the hardware. Uh, whereas HP, HP really, at the end of the day, HP, Dell, Lenovo, they don't really care about Windows. They care about Windows to the point that it makes them a profit on selling their hardware. And past that, they don't really give a rip. If tomorrow everyone wanted to install Linux, you better believe Dell and HP and Lenovo and all those other companies would be making the most Linux-friendly computers possible because they want their hardware to sell. Mm. And I think there is an advantage, however small. I'd say that's like 2% of the overall battle. The rest of the 90%, 98% I completely agree with Wimpy on just trying to avoid them altogether if you can. <laughs> uh, so there is also an undeniable fact that there is a huge, huge price point at $300 that is extremely attractive to people that are looking at Chromebooks right. and, and stuff like that. Uh, Acers the, and like yeah, – Yeah, right. yeah. So, Wimpy, you mentioned there's other options out there. What are your thoughts as far as that, that price point goes? And, yeah, maybe you could call them um, having sort of certain sets of expectations or entitlements. But at the same time, wouldn't we love to welcome these Chromebook buyers or these $300 HP stream buyers uh, with open arms in the Linux community? Your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, well, so the other options, I've talked about the Linux-specific uh, manufacturers, but if somebody wants a laptop from a mainstream vendor in two days to convert somebody to Linux, Hewlett-Packard have a range of, and I'm talking about in Europe and North America now, rather than the floods and floods of Ubuntu laptops that are available in, in the Far East, because they are awash with Ubuntu laptops out there. It's it's about 40% of PC sales wow. are pre-installs with Ubuntu. So we're not seeing all of that in Europe and, and the US. But Hewlett-Packard have a range of low-cost um, laptops all pre-installed running Ubuntu. They, in the UK, are under £300. I, th- I think some of them are just a touch under £200. So their entry-level Chromebook pricing running Ubuntu, and then Dell, of course, have a range of machines, and they don't just have the high-end developer 
um, stuff, you know, the Sputnik and the XPS 13. They also have a line of precision laptops now, and their entry-level costs are reasonable. And again, if you buy those computers from those manufacturers pre-installed with uh, Ubuntu or whatever distribution they may have, you are adding a count on the chalkboard to say there is a demand for people to buy computers pre-installed with Linux rather than buy one of their Windows computers and then try and install Linux on it after the fact. I completely, completely agree. Uh, That and I think that's also maybe worth part of the cost increase for those people who can can make it work. Uh, I wanted to just... Now that we've talked about the hardware entitlement aspect, which I think was a fascinating point, Wimpy, uh, I wanted to now go back, if we could, just for a little bit longer, to the issue that you brought up rather brilliantly is, and it just so perfectly underscores what is kind of an entitlement issue here. Here, this 1604 network manager problem is, it's big enough that we hear about it all the time here on the show. Yep. And so that, to me, is my barometer. Been around for a few of these releases, and I can tell you what kind of things I get feedback on and what kind of things I don't per release, and this is one that's showing up on the radar. I I can tell you from my metrics, it's an issue. So with that said, like Wimpy brilliantly just said, it's nobody's doing nothing. It's sitting there, and in fact, on the GNOME bug tracker, it's gone off in the completely wrong direction. And it, what could we do better, Wimpy, as far as an infrastructure to make this work. Rekai in the chat room is saying we need some sort of distributed API that interconnects all the bug tracking systems and allows them to share. Maybe something that uses the blockchain, and there could be coin rewards for bugs. What do you think, Wimpy? What's, what, what are our options? Yeah, Rekai put in the chat earlier about creating a better bug tracking, bug logging system. And he's right, because even the good ones that exist in some of the open source projects aren't really that great by modern standards in terms of web applications. And with the work that I do in Debian, filing and closing bugs in Debian is, it's like pulling teeth. It's all done with email. It's just, I I mean, I, I absolutely hate having to involve myself with the Debian bug tracking system. It's truly awful. And I'm sure that everyone that knows how to use it with email thinks that great, but I so yeah. rarely use but email But not, a, not these an days encouraging way to get volunteers to uh, no. spend their free time. No, and it gets more complex when, you know, you have a bug raised at, say, a distribution level, say in Ubuntu, and then, you know, as you've pointed out, that bug then actually is re- referenced in an upstream bug, and, you know, the conversations get, you know, lost between the two chains i i don't know what the solution is but i agree there's probably a better way out there for somebody cleverer than i am to invent mm-hmm. and create and improve improve open source bug it does, tracking for it does seem like it does seem like I've, we should have a better system yeah go ahead i've actually brought this uh before um this issue before and, and i think the solution will be better lied in something like the linux foundation to set the common bug tracker type thing Hmm. So that you have one account. It's also because yeah, yeah, you're the right kernel about that. is tracking. The, the, because if get, the usual problem is you are dealing with multiple uh, entities and the distributions deal differently, but what yeah. they have in common is the foundation. So, so the I I have I have bug tracker accounts on probably fifteen or twenty different open source projects, right. and I'm going to be honest, and I I probably almost. We'll regret saying this on air, but uh, listen close, folks. It just gets to the point now when I go to a bug tracker where I don't have an account, I bail. 
Uh, I just like here's what happens is like sometimes something crashes and then like something that come up and say would you like to submit a bug I say yes and then You're like, like a little high of like yes I'm going to do it I'm just going to submit the bug I'll yeah, get it over got, with I, yeah I wasn't planning on this but it's like you know, five like, minutes yeah. it's fine and then okay, I'll move okay. on and then I go and then it's like oh I, I oh I don't ha- bum, bum, bum. Uh, yeah I in fact as a matter of fact well, you just yeah, I, what happens you, you know what I hear you know what I hear in my head at that very moment I I feel like I hear the fail horn on prices right in the back of my yeah. And then I I just move on. And I feel so bad for doing that. But I'm just but I think I'm tapped out. Been there at times. I'm, I'm tapped out. Like when I go when I go into LastPass, it's ridiculous how many accounts I have for bug trackers. And this is I hate this crap. So uh, I mean that I know I should Debian does have one tool. Report bug. Yeah. Okay, to say yeah. maybe these users should adopt something like it. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and and you know, like like Rikai points out, this is this was why I created a GitHub account like a couple of years ago because like just more and more now is on there, and that's nice. But I don't really want to encourage open source projects to have their bug tracker tied to GitHub. Right. So I just. I mean, it'd be better on GitLab or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. More open. Yeah. That's fine. Distributed. Yeah. Yeah. Even then. Hmm. Um, mm, GitHub versus GitLab is a conversation for another day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, we could totally have that conversation. Uh, one last conversation. I, since uh, Mr. Brown made a chan- had a chance to make it here, uh, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have anything in the feedback or follow up because we didn't have much discussion. I thought I, I, I sort of threw out the bait out there for a ZFS versus ButterFS you conversation really did. Uh, on this more baiting than you usually do. Thank you. You noticed. You know, Wes, I like you. Uh, and I'll tell you what. Uh, not many bites. Like, at least so far. Now, I've only checked. That was the feedback as of about 9 a.m. So, Mr. Brown, uh, I would love to hear your feedback if you had a chance to see what we talked about in the news segment. Oh, oh yeah. I saw. I, I'm, yeah. Didn't put anything on, on your subreddit because, you know, not safe for children. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. Okay. Let me have it. Let's hear what, Let's see what you think. Well, uh, I've got issues at, at multiple levels. So, let's start with the simple one. <laughs> Just get it out the way. Licensing. Until yeah, the ZFS okay. licensing uh-huh. gray area is solved, no business that doesn't want to take a gamble, you know, can be using it. But can I stop you? you? Know, so it, let me stop you there. I want to break this down. So, but at the same time, at the same time, there is a competitive. There must be a competitive pressure since now Debian, Debian of all distributions. No, because Debian didn't read. Okay, Debian didn't put it in their distribution any more than OpenSUSE has had it yeah, in our distribution it, for well, years. That's, that's, it's in a contrib repo. It's but not they in are the, the ones doing the groundwork around the quote-unquote workaround. That's what I'm referring to, not even necessarily no, them okay, shipping the well, code. Then that moves me on to the next funky thing. So, okay, let's forget about the, philosophic, the philosophical stuff and the licensing because, you know, that's another debate anyway. Uh-huh. Let's stick to nice, <laughs> pragmatic, technical grounds. The Debian workaround is a DKMS, you know, compile right, on yeah. your machine solution. Do you really want to be doing that for a file system? I hate mean, it. you no, had it. I hate it. It's already been me well, once. But I will say, anyone in production, you up. would pre-compile that module. Yeah, you would have your own repo where that module is compiled and shipped. You would sure. only update the kernel in conjunction with that module. Yeah, so fact, I don't know if that's an enterprise like desktop, then, yes, but, then, but an enterprise, I don't know if that's a problem. But then that brings you to think, okay, who do you phone? Who's going to deal with those bugs when you have them? I mean, just look at the bug statistics on ZFS on Linux. If you if you're nice and generous and only look at the same period as the current open upstream bugs in BTOFS, there is still more than twice as many bugs upstream in ZFS for Linux open right now than there is on BTOFS. Okay, so one one thing I want to uh, one thing I want to just touch on really quick before we go too much further. 
Uh, when you mentioned the gray area around the licensing, I, I, I totally agree with you. It is a gray area. <laughs> and I was shocked that Canonical had the chutzpah, or chutzpah to actually – is that chutzpah? Is that what it is? Chutzpah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chutzpah? Yeah. Uh, had the chutzpah to ship it. I – I tell you what, Richard, I never thought – I thought it would be another year from now. And I, I, I feel I feel like it's a strategy tax a bit perhaps on them down the road. But nonetheless, I, they did it. So once, once they started doing this, it started to have certain flavors of the codec discussions. The same thing around licensing of codecs or licensing of the DVD playback. This feels like sort of a worry of yesteryear that never really panned out. There never really was any major repercussions for shipping codecs. There never really was a problem for using DVD CSS. In the enthusiast in, in the enthusiast space, which of course is is you know a, a valid area. Fine. Yes, it, it, there wasn't, and like even you know Debian reviewed the. Uh, patent stuff because you know basically boiling down to we're not making any money so it's no problem for us right. that's fine but then your whole argument with zfs during las was the market demands well the market is money the market is businesses the market is enterprises those guys can't afford to do that distributions i mean take for example even open we're not exactly the most enterprise friendly distribution we have organizations using us embedded stuff and on their devices because yeah. we have yeah. no gray area. Because if you're redistributing that stuff, if you're taking Tumbleweed time, and putting OEM on your hardware, which is of course is a problem Mint had, the OEM is suddenly then responsible for so, that gray area. So I, no so this one is, is going to touch that stuff with a barge pole. I think you're right, and this is the area where you and I probably disagree the strongest. Uh, because so here's how I see what you're saying is. You're essentially making the Internet of Things or small embedded devices or shippable devices argument, which is a pretty solid one. The issue is not only is there a, a, a wash of non-Linux OSs already in that space, but there's already a bunch of great Linuxes in that space that already have a, a great bunch of momentum behind them. At the same time, I, I would imagine it must be important to the project to gain ground on the desktop, in the DevOps space, in the engineer space, and on the cloud primarily. And when we talk about the market demands and we talk about the larger market as a whole, my main point that I was trying to make really there is ButterFS is screwed as far as a brand. Now, I'm not saying our Linux is the measure of anything, but if you just look at the thread that was posted four hours ago, on our Linux about ButterFS versus ZFS on the desktop. There are 19 comments, and, and literally, Richard, yeah. every single one of them is shitting on ButterFS. I know, but... Or, and, and I'm not okay. saying they're right. I'm saying... I'm saying the brand ship on ButterFS has sailed, and, and nobody is no. going to hitch their okay. wagon to that. I'm interrupting you for a change, because this is fun. Blah. File barriers. 2008. Every single distribution had file barriers disabled because of performance issues, apart from SUSE, because, you know, we care about this stuff. That totally negated the, the protections of journaling on EXT3, EXT4, and XFS. Every single one of those file systems was royally screwed with people losing data, and everybody was screaming about it, and it was a big issue, and OWN did articles about it, of how the world is falling mm -hmm. apart. Mm -hmm. and, and then LVM made it worse, because even when they fixed it on the file systems, LVM didn't enable yeah. that, so LVM was screwing up everyone's file systems. And yet everybody loves EXT3 and 4 now, and everybody likes LVM now. 
because I, I would you know, not, they, they, I would they, not they, make those, that. Those were fundamentally flawed issues that every distribution, apart from one, was shipping. Now, BTFS, yes, has some, you know, marketing issues. They are fundamentally flawed. BTRFS, when done properly, like you see in OpenSUSE, is a damn good file system. And if you want a root copy on write file system, it's your only choice on Linux. And if you want to boot to a snapshot, it's your only choice on Linux. You've got to try it. You've got to learn it. You've got to understand it. If people yeah. aren't ready yet, fine. But running to ZFS as like some savior when right. the, the license is a complete mess. ZFS on Linux is a complete joke right now when, it, when you look at the bugs and who's actually fixing them. You can't put your faith in, a dis- in that. ZFS is a great file system, but not on Linux, not so yet. Let me, so let me, I want to address a couple of points. Uh, the first one is, I think in terms of enterprise storage deployments, I don't think you see a lot of Extended 4 as the main core file system on like NASs. And large uh, storage, you'll see you'll see a lot of different file systems, and some of them are extended for. But a lot of times, there's like if they are, there's a very very large and robust uh, virtual management suite that sits on top or of that. Or they're on like large proprietary uh, appliances. Yeah, you know, so providing like a SAN. I don't. I think in the enterprise, I I, I think that's sort of a gray area where ButterFS has uh, has basically no foothold. But I, I agree with your core fundamental point in that ButterFS is worth our time and worth our energy, and we shouldn't be running to ZFS. Um, just and, using ButterFS on your root just to get snapshots alone, like that'll work fine, and you get you get a lot for just doing that. But I think if we zoom out a bit and we go to the meta level of what our conversations are, what I'm what I'm saying is what you are presenting to me is a technical argument on the valid reasons why long term ButterFS is a better investment of our of our collective resources. From a legal standpoint, from a technology standpoint, from an owning it standpoint, from an integration standpoint, uh, and even from a feature set standpoint, uh, ButterFS is a better file system for us to invest in. But at the same time, but what, my, what, what I feel like you're not hearing is my argument that people are choosing Ubuntu or they're going to choose Debian over OpenSUSE because it simply doesn't have ZFS. And that's where the decision tree is at. It's not, they're not going beyond that decision point. It's, does it have ZFS support? If the, well, yeah, people are weird. But if ZFS, okay, the ZFS on Debian thing is a joke because ZFS is in OpenSUSE as much as ZFS is in Debian. So, fine. There we go. If you want to have, I, I agree module, from like a software availability standpoint. But we're talking about they're the ones that did the legal groundwork to make it no, possible. They didn't do the they didn't do any more legal groundwork than we have, which is basically you don't ship it as a core part of your distribution, which is simple, fine. Yeah, you, know, you know the user can then choose what the hell they do with their licenses, which is you know a concept that every distribution follows. And Debian, uh, you know, Debian have only just done it now. And yeah, okay, OpenSUSE should have done an announcement what two, three years ago when we did it. Do you? Fine. Well, if, I'm, not, I'm not saying that OpenSUSE doesn't have a repo where I can get ZFS and then install the userland utilities. That's not the defining thing here. What seems to be the defining... Debian put it in Contrib. It's not in main. It's not in their distribution. It's not a core part of their distro. Now, can't the Ubuntu scenario, it can't go in main. And just, right. like, just like ZFS can't go in the main OpenSUSE repos. But that's the thing. If, if, if you're saying ZFS is in Debian, then ZFS has been in OpenSUSE for just as long. So you don't, you, don't, you don't give any credence to their, their, their... What they claim to be is three years of legal work to analyze the licenses and have a legal decision that they feel makes it safe. You're not giving any credibility to that work there? 
I, we did the same work. We came to the same conclusion. We kind of made similar steps. We don't like DKMS as much, so you know we build it differently. But you know, does it seem like does it seem like does it seem like picking on Debian is almost irrelevant when the real cloud dominator is Ubuntu? And and it, I guess what I'm trying to get to is honestly, it seems like an anti-growth strategy not to have ZFS support. You, okay, data is sacred. You really think it would be a good thing if OpenSUSE? I'm not making offered, a technical argument. No, no, no. Yeah, but but you know, they, yeah, but this is the thing. You know, we we have a responsibility as distribution maintainers to make informed decisions for the benefit of our users. ZFS right now on Linux has way too many gray areas. Ignore the licensing ones. I'm just mm-hmm. nervous about the fact that it's basically two guys at LLNL maintaining it with a massive back bug backlog, some of which include data loss stuff. It, it's not in the kernel. It's not keeping up with kernel development that well. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to offer that. You know, If the licensing issues totally went away tomorrow, if you know, Oracle relicensed it, I would still be nervous mm-hmm. now saying, okay, this is a fully supported distribution which you can trust, fully supported file system on my distribution that you mm-hmm. can trust. Because I can't trust it yet. If this was ZFS on FreeBST or mm-hmm. Solaris, totally different story. But mm-hmm. this is ZFS on Linux, and it ha- it's been less tried and tested, and it is less trustworthy at this point. And there's way too many scary bugs I see in that bug tracker, and I don't see it being fixed fast enough because yeah. it's only a couple of guys because you have the licensing issues but then we're back in this cyclic so just to be clear on my position there the only place where i have production data that i i, I deem valuable with on zfs is on a freenas server uh and i i think you would be very risky to run zfs in a large-scale production unless you're doing like wes mentioned uh pre-building your module and you have safe update process now here so will this all change i mean should we really come back to this in a year or two years or the next LTS? Perhaps. You, I, think now that we I don't that? think so. I think the licensing is always going to make it this weird DKMS workaround. But Except I guess on 1604 where you have it pre-compiled. Like, will that, I guess will yes. that change this discussion? Yeah, but and will that make ZOL, what do you think, ZOL what do you better think? tested? I, I'm not saying it has now. I'm just curious. Well, I mean, if this was a different company doing this move, I'd be, I'd have a totally different opinion. But, you know, file systems are traditionally kernel-y kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it, they live in the kernel, they, they play with the kernel, they do all of that. This is canonical we're talking about. They're not exactly the biggest contributors to the kernel by any measure. So, yes, they've taken some package, they've packaged it up, they've put it in their distribution. Great for that. I will, but I will if play. something goes wrong, who are you going to call? Who's going to fix those bugs? Where's the skills? Where's the knowledge? Where's the trust? So I will claim that Canonical is, as a company that is selling a product as well and trying to put this product out there and take responsibility if it comes down to it. They've done it in the past. They've also decided not to do it in certain circumstances. But as it's their choice and they understand that they have to support their decisions, we'll probably take the responsibility. This is the first thing. So if we, if we, uh, if we separate out the legal issues and the technical issues, which... Uh, I think the legal issues, we just have, like Wes is saying, we have to stay tuned and see where it goes. But with the technical issues, Richard, it, it reminds me uh, fundamentally of people who are very intimate with container technology say a lot of these th- same things about Docker. But yet, oh, yeah. but Docker is the big brand that everybody wants. I mean, you saw you saw Red Hat. They, they slammed it into 7.0, so that way they could claim Red Hat Enterprise 7.0 had Docker support, even though it was nowhere near enterprise-grade ready. We have it in sleep. Yes, I mean, uh, yes. There's 
decisions like that you can make, but there has to be a line where you say, okay, we're not going to cross this. We can't do this in a, a stable and sane way. And I'd say right now, uh, you know, if, if, if it was just down to me, just looking at ZFS on a purely technical level, ZFS on I mean, Linux has not proven itself yet. And this is, mm-hmm. this is file system data we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, I it? agree. I you agree. Know, something in some container which is going to explode anyway because it's a container. <laughs> I mean, it's meant to be, tr- it's meant to die at some point. Right. Is a totally different scenario than this yeah. is my data which I want to keep forever. But seriously, if we want to concern about legal issues, we have to be paying more attention at Google versus Oracle as it goes to APIs. And guess what? Linux copied Unix API. Well, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we've been talking about that on the Coda Radio program, if you guys do want some, some discussion on that. Uh, I, I So I guess, Richard, I, I feel like you are right from a uh, playing it safe standpoint in, gar- in regards to legal uh, risk, and you're right from a technical standpoint. And I, it's, I, and I don't discourage OpenSUSE from taking this stance because, if anything, it just adds more pressure to make ButterFS continue to get better and better and better. So from like a right. pure Linux user standpoint, I sit here and I go, sweet, I'm really glad that there is a well-established distribution that is taking this position that is going to forward our locally grown file system. Like that that person inside that me. value to our value yeah. to our ecosystem. Right I'm now. like, yeah, tip of the hat to you. But then like the market analyst side of me that looks at uh, the market positions that uh, OpenSUSE are, is hopefully going to grow into. And I think, oh, geez, this could be a this could be a barrier. So I'm really torn on the issue. I don't think you are. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm not. I'm. I'm seeing too many. Like when it comes to like, okay, evolving storage trends. Like the the tech that everybody's got to be talking about isn't ZFS. It's Ceph, and and that's a completely different kettle of fish with a completely mm. different use case. But that's you know that that's where the low mid range storage market's moving. That's where the money's going. That's where you know. Trust me, Susan's seeing that. You know. Our storage yeah. product was yeah. funded before we even started building it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, that's yeah, that, that's where the disruption's really going to be. Not in not in ZFS. I mean, especially even like if you look at like the cool things in ZFS, like RAID Z, which isn't RAID, and everyone goes on about that. Of oh yes, it's finally solved the RAID hole that everybody worries about and everything. <laughs> yeah, then you can never read your data quickly because it only reads at the speed of one disk. I mean, ZFS has lots of cool yeah. things. In theory, it's like it's like tech porn. But in the real world, the world's moving on. There's more interesting things on the horizon. I'd, I'd much rather look at that than... You may be right. You may you may be wrong, but you may be very right. And I hope you are right about that. And thank you for having a, such a strong viewpoint for this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Wimpy, I wanted to give you uh, sort of the follow-up word before we wrap up this segment. Oh, I've got I've got nothing new to, to say to this. Um, Richard has summarized it all very well, but this hasn't been a recent development within Debian. It was something they've been working on for years, and they actually announced that ZFS was coming to Debian just over a year ago uh, when the last uh, Debian project leader, Neil McGovern, was, was in. And uh, so that was last April that they announced mm-hmm. this was coming and then a year later it's landed so it's not been and and also they've um had discussions with all of the legal experts that they can talk to and they're confident that they are right to do this would that sort of be the green light richard is if some legal trials happen and this thing actually gets tested and things sort of look like they're shaping up in favor of shipping you guys would probably reevaluate the position if there was a need to right 
if Oracle relicensed ZFS tomorrow, everything I just said changes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, because, right. I mean, if they really, which I doubt it, but that is also the position of the Free Software Foundation, too, and the Software Conservancy. So maybe there is, so there are some big uh, foundations out there that are at least calling for it. I don't know if Oracle's very motivated to do it, though. That's mm. <laughs> I've, um, I've checked the weather forecast in hell for tomorrow. It's still looking toasty. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, Richard, I really do appreciate you stopping by to chat about it. And, of course, we could always pick it back up in the post-show. You know, the Unplugged program is live on the Tuesdays. you got to be here live. Over at jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time zone. You can also join us in that virtual lug and hang out with your local virtual Linux users group. We'll see if Wes's laptop makes it another week without getting reloaded. Probably not. Probably not. But be here next week. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com for feedback or just leave a comment wherever you watch this. We really do appreciate that. And don't forget, you can catch us next week or grab our RSS feed. See you then. Richard, you're a good sport, and uh, and nice to have somebody who's uh, willing to come in here and uh, voice a a well-stated and well-informed opinion too. So I really do appreciate it. Yeah, excellent. Um. All right, JBTitles.com. Bangs. Now we both. Healthy looking mumble room today. Um, I love. By the way, while while I'm on a roll, like. You do know that, like, SUSE Linux Enterprise only uses the LTS kernels now, right? That's nice. That is Good nice. point to make. Good Absolutely. point to make. Well said. Well said. Greg's kernel of truth isn't bad. The price of freedom. Uh, the file system. File system, a bug report. Pain. All right. You guys go over there and go boat. Shake them out. I do have a little post-show thing I wanted to share with you guys. Oh, drop uh, it down. You know what? Look at this thread over there. Speaking of cheap laptops and stuff, there is this huge thread submitted 10 hours ago by Reed Harder. Blog slash rant. Oh, let's he, get in. Yeah, about taking a serious look at Chromebooks as the Linux desktop and talking about loving Chromebooks, et cetera, et cetera. But then, of course... Of course, after 17 comments, it devolves into using Crouton or other things uh, to get Linux on Chromebooks. This is a hot, hot area. That's a hot market. It really, I mean, they're so cheap. So cheap. Hot market. Colonel Linux, uh, you've uh, you've had some good success recently with picking up a cheap laptop and uh, throwing Linux on there. I have, but basically what I found is that Microsoft is subsidizing hardware just like Google is, and the the nice thing about that is they don't lock the uh, – Chromebooks do this thing, which a lot of people are aware of, but some people don't know exactly how much of a pain it can be. They lock the bootloader so that there is a signed key for Google, and if the battery dies on certain models of Chromebooks, what happens is it, it defaults back to that read-only state with the secure boot enabled – and you can't actually boot back into Linux because it doesn't have the Chrome key. And because Chrome OS is no longer installed, you can't boot into Chrome OS to turn Secure Boot back off. And so you're just kind of in this limbo that forces you to reinstall Chrome OS oh. and, then, and then reinstall your Linux distro. And so you can fix it on certain models by taking a right screw up. But what I found is that basically 
these ODMs have made cheap little computers. Like HP makes a cheap little computer, and they sell some of them to Google subsidizes some of them, puts their little goofy mm-hmm. right protection in there, and sells it with Chrome OS. And Microsoft does the same thing with Windows 10, except when you wipe Windows 10 off, then you're just left with a normal bootloader. So this is why I'm nice. going. With, this is why I'm going with Wimpy. My position on this, if ever possible, is skip a computer, save up, and get one that runs Linux, that's built to run Linux, because that, I mean, that stuff doesn't sound too bad, but just having to worry about that would drive me crazy! So, yeah. let, let's, yeah, let's be clear, matter. though. I mean, there, there are certain times, though, where you're not skipping one computer, you're skipping two or three, right? Because, so, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're looking at, you're looking at, you know, those HP streams are $179. Now, what's the cheapest and, and you computer know what I can buy with Linux on it? Yeah, and you know they're saying in that thread was my computer died. I needed a quick replacement. I didn't exactly. have. I hadn't budgeted for a new computer. I totally understand that too. Well, how much computer can you buy for one hundred and seventy nine dollars on eBay? And that's going to have a decent keyboard. It may be a little yep. bit older, but hey, you can take the backplate off and replace the Wi Fi card, or add more RAM, or change the hard drive. Go use. Couldn't could never do with a Chromebook. In a Definitely. pinch, I feel like Ready we didn't go, yeah. we didn't first. mention the like Wi Fi USB three dongles you can get. The, yeah, the that's, that's like, what I do. You, you can just like. Buy a better Linux, you know, everything yeah. else. With I get you. I just go USB wireless. Kernel Linux even gave me just like this tiny little dongle that's the size of like a, a, a mouse receiver, just like the little tiny nice. ones. Yeah. Kernel Linux and his tiny dongles. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <Woo-hoo. laughs>